Okay. <laughs> like the kids do all the selfies. The Pope's got a selfie there. There's some Italian kids with the Pope with a selfie. Okay, so uh, we said last time what we were going to do is go over Ezekiel, just kind of focus on Ezekiel, because there's some really, uh, well, all the prophets have got great passages in them, but Ezekiel's got some really very uh, uh, interesting passages, especially Ezekiel 37 with uh, the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Um, And so uh, how about we do this? How about we read once through that chapter... And then we kind of back up and we look at other texts and we start trying to get it, figure out what it means and how to interpret it properly. So let's go right to Ezekiel 37 and read, uh, read through it. So how about we have someone read the first... Uh, three verses. Uh, Nancy, you want to do that? Okay. Vision of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he led me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me in the center of the plain, which was now filled with bones. He made me walk among them in every direction, so that I saw how many there were on the surface of the plain, how dry they were. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones come to life? Lord God, I answered, you alone know that. All right, that's good. So think about dry bones, right? If you've got a, a, a corpse and, um, you know, when someone dies, there are um, actually the whole process of decomposition actually starts because of organisms that are in the body. We have we have tons of living organisms in us right now, and when we when our when we die, those organisms take over, and that's what actually how decomposition starts. But that's a pretty moist reality, right? And so the body is going to be remain, you know, the corruption is going to be there, and it's gonna, the body's going to be moist for quite a long time. So, what if the bones are dry? What does that mean? They've been there a long time, so they're, this is these these bodies. Not only are they dead, they're really dead. <laughs> okay, that's the point. All right, dry bones, and they're scattered everywhere too. So they might even be totally disconnected. You know, I mean, a, a, a skeleton will be there, but then after a while, it'll just totally fall apart because all the ligaments, everything that connects the bones, will turn to dust, and the bones will just be something you can kind of spread out and scatter. So that's the vision that he's seen. And uh, so it's a valley full of tons and tons of dead people. And they're very dead, and and they've been dead for a while. Okay, so why don't we have someone read verses 4 to 10? Uh, Who wants to read? uh, Charlie, go ahead. Verses 4 to 10. Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, See, I will bring spirit into you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews upon you, make flesh grow over you, cover you with skin, and put spirit in you, so that you may come to life and know that I am the Lord. I prophesied as I had said, as I had been told. And even as I was prophesying, I heard a noise. It was a rattling as the bones came together. 
bone joining bone. I saw the sinews of the flesh come upon them, and the skin cover them, but there was no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy, son of man, and say to the spirit, thus says the Lord God, from the four winds come, O spirit, and breathe into these slain that they may come to life. Good. I think maybe one more verse there. I prophesied as he told me, and the Spirit came into them. They came alive and stood upright, a vast army. That's great. So a vast army, or host, right? And we call God the Lord of hosts. So this is his holy army that's been assembled. This is the people of God. And uh, But isn't this pretty wild? you got the bones and they're rattling even, right? <laughs> They're rattling as they're coming together, and uh, this is this is this image is something that you know a special effects movie producer would really would really have a have a heyday with. You know, you could do this with modern computer graphics and all that kind of stuff. So the bones come together, then the ligaments start to form, and the muscles and the flesh, but yet they're still uh, just kind of like I, I would imagine prostrate bodies all over the all over this surface of the of the earth, and then he prophesies again and he and he and he prophesies to the wind or to the breath some translations say and the wind comes in and and the fill them the, the bodies are filled with the spirit and they get up and they stand up on their feet an exceeding great host um now charlie your translation said i think spirit or wind something like that right mine says breath and it's because the the hebrew word is ruach and it can be translated spirit, it can be translated wind, it can be translated breath. And it's the same um, word that we see right in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 1, when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. The Ruach of God hovered over the face of the deep. So you have the spirit in the beginning, or the wind, and so some translations, some modern translations, even say wind. Wind went over the the water, um, and then the parting of the Red Sea is parted through by a wind. The wind blows over the Red Sea and it parts it. But that again, it's ruach. It's the same Hebrew word. So we have the spirit, you know, in the Exodus um, of the children of Israel out of Egypt to cross the Red Sea. You've got the spirit of God which is this instrument of deliverance, okay? And it's connected with water. And then we've got, in Genesis chapter 1, we've got the Spirit of God, again, connected with water, but it's a creative force, all right? And then, of course, we've got our Lord's baptism. When he's baptized, he's over the waters, and the Spirit of God comes down on him like in the form of a dove. And so the Holy Spirit and water are associated, spirit and water, breath and water, um, and then, of course, our Lord as well in John chapter 3, he says, unless uh, a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. And he said, But that word there is a Greek word, it's pneuma, and it means spirit, but it also means wind as well. So it's got that same, the, the Greek word pneuma has got the same kind of ambiguity to it that the Hebrew word uh, ruach does. And so that's why Jesus goes on and he says, just as the wind blows, uh, you know, just as, as you know, the, the 
where it comes from. So the way, okay, where it comes from and where it goes, you don't know, um, but uh, but you know, boy, my my memory is failing me in my old age. <laughs> There's these verses that I I used to know like the back of my hand, and I don't know. Childhood poems about the trees bowing. So uh, yeah, it says. It says uh, the wind blows where it wills, that's right, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with all those who are born of the pneuma. So it is with all those who are born of the wind. So it is with all those who are born of the spirit, however you want to translate that. So the spirit and wind, it's, a, it's an interesting connection. And so we, we have this vision of the bones, and, the, and, and Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel is going to prophesy to the wind because... He says, come from the four corners, from the four winds. But at the same time, it's the spirit. Okay, so it's this kind of creative force. Um, And then, of course, what about uh, Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord God forms the first man? How does he do that? What what happens? He breathes into him, him, right? And, uh, And then the man becomes a living being. So it's just, it's like, this is like a creation that's taking place, but it's a resurrection. And so resurrection and creation are similar. And the ancient church fathers, you know, the idea of a resurrection is a a very specifically Jewish and Christian idea. And to the non-Jews and Christians, to the pagans, they really found that incredible. They really found that hard to believe, that they thought that was ridiculous. So, for example, if we can remember in Acts 17, when St. Paul goes, he does his famous speech in in, uh, Greece, in the Areopagus, in Athens, and he gives this kind of philosophical discourse about the existence of God and how God it can't be likened to any sort of material thing. And everybody's and the Greeks are kind of buying it, but then he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead, and they're like, oh, what are you talking about? Are you going nuts? You're going crazy? And so you see that the Gentile mind can only go so far, but then when it comes to the idea of the resurrection, they really they stumble over that. And that's has to do with a lot of reasons, but one of them is because to the ancient pagan mind, uh, lots of times they conceive of the body as kind of a, almost an encumbrance, a non-spiritual thing. It really wasn't good. Matter was kind of evil. And so spiritual liberation was the liberation of the soul from the body. And the body wasn't really uh, of much value. And, that, and, that's, and you get into beliefs of reincarnation and all that kind of stuff. It's very pagan kind of thinking. Whereas for the biblical concept, the body is an essential part of who we are. And so you really can't talk or think about the eternity of a human personality apart from the body. We believe that the soul in itself is eternal, inherently eternal, uh, but that it, and it, it can exist apart from the body, but it's really not proper for it to exist apart from the body. There's something kind of wrong for it to, to be doing so. And so, you know, really, when you talk about the eternity of, a, of the human person, Biblically, you can't really fully conceive of that apart from the body as well. So resurrection is a very, it's a very, um, uh, because the soul and the body together compose one individual. It's not like my so- I'm really my soul and my body is something apart from me, you know, and my soul dwells in my body like a ghost in a machine or something like that. It's not like that. Our soul is, philosophers, they call it the form of the body. And so it actually, our soul makes our body what it is, that is a human body. And the unity is so close together that they form one, one thing, one composite, composite uh, uh, personality or person. 
So that's the biblical concept. And uh, the idea of resurrection then on that kind of a concept of the human person is not crazy at all. In fact, it's pretty rational, pretty so reasonable. Ezekiel, when he said on, yeah. he's, he's just referring to the large number, or do you think he's actually resurrecting a An group? Army. A group? I, the, the generation on Mount Sinai that was yeah. less than 40 years? Uh, maybe it was them? Uh, I think it's Holocaust, something. Yeah, I mean, I think the army. It's like you got to remember, Israel was the army of the Lord. All of Israel was, because all the men fought. All right, yes. so so all of Israel. It wasn't like they had a standing army apart. Not necessary. I mean, but it's, they were already and equipped to fight. It's they did. Sure. Well, today, yeah. Um, you know, but the ancient Israelites, biblically speaking, you know, they were conceived of as as an army, really. Okay. Um, so it, it me, I think it means that many, many, but it also has. I think it has martial connotations to it as well. You know, Mark. I, I had a question, like sort of, yeah, like his. Is there like, uh, like Christ resurrected on Easter? We know that, mm-hmm. right? Is, is there like certain times that people have resurrected through the years? Like they're talking about now? Well, okay, so you, you can make a distinction between a resuscitation and the kind of resurrection that our Lord underwent. The kind of resurrection that our Lord underwent was a final state of... He, he, he transitioned into a final state of glory. And so in that sense, we know for sure of only two, and I think we might even want to say we know that there's definitely only two, although maybe there's some others, but I think it's just two. It's Christ and Mary. Who are in that, whose bodies are in a state of final glory. But as far as resuscitations go, certainly there's been many, many resuscitations. You know, our cor- who, who, how many people did our Lord Himself raise from the dead? Yeah. Lazarus, for example. Yeah. But Lazarus would have died again. Well, Enoch. Okay, Lazarus would have died again. The little girl that He rose from the dead, raised from the dead, she would have died again. Whereas Christ is risen no more to die. And so also Mary, whose body was translated into glory. She also is, is, lives with an indestructible life. And then Enoch uh, and Elijah are kind of unique examples because their, their body is assumed into heaven, but I, 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 I would really want to argue, and I think this would be the orthodox line to take, is that they're not in a state of final glory. And that's why it's kind of strange. They're kind of like in this intermediate state. And that's why we believe at least... At least it's been widely believed, how, let's say that, it's been widely believed in the history of Catholicism that Elijah and Enoch will actually return to earth before the second coming of Christ, and, and they will be killed. Could be, yeah, could be. There's that, the stuff, that's, all that stuff is not easy to interpret, but it's possible, in which case they'll be killed again. So they don't, they're not living with an indestructible kind of life. Yeah, they're, they're being like preserved, they basically. About, they wouldn't be worried about they wouldn't be what? Worried about God if they, they come back, if, those, if they were the witnesses. Yeah. Well, when they come back, they won't be worried about dying anyways. Yeah, I mean, if they really are going to come back and they're going to breathe fire and all this stuff, I mean, I don't think they're going to be, you know. Um, so, what else could I say here? Okay, let's read from 11 to 14. Who wants to do that? Reggie? 
Are you a reluctant reader? A little bit. (laughs) Oh, all right. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They have been saying, Our bones are dried up, our home is lost, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves and have you rise from them and bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and have you rise from them, O my people. I forgot when you told me to stand. One more verse. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. I will put my spirit in you that you may live, and I will settle you upon your land. Thus you shall know that I am the Lord. I have promised, and I will do it, says the Lord. Good. Okay, so now those verses are very important because they really they interpret what we've seen. Uh, we've got this vision, and then we kind of have an interpretation of it. And really what we see here is that the Israelites are in exile. Okay, So this is probably you know maybe the year 5, uh, I don't know, I'm going to guess like 580 or 570 or something like that. And uh, the northern kingdom has been defunct for many, for a long time, 150 years. And the northern kingdom has been spread out everywhere. The southern kingdom has just been uh, defeated and taken into captivity or is in the process of doing that. Because Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in and he took over the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, he did it in phases. So like in one of his attacks, he would have taken away a group. So, so he came in, he kind of he beat up Jerusalem, he bullied him around, beat him up. And then he would like appoint his own king. It was a, it was a, a Jewish king, but it was his own kind of appointment. Okay, so he puts his own Jewish king in there. He goes away, and when he goes away back to Babylon, he brings a whole ton of captives with him. And so that's why Daniel gets into Babylon and Ezekiel's in Babylon right now because they're being taken away by the Babylonians into. And then that puppet king. Jewish king that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, he kind of starts getting a little bit like, hey, you know what? We can, we can, we don't have to submit to this guy anymore. And so then Nebuchadnezzar comes back and spanks him again. Okay, and that happens three or four times. And eventually, 580, by 586, they, they go and they destroy the temple and they just really destroy everything. And they, they really decimate Jerusalem and they pull everybody out of there. And there's only just a few, Poor people left, you know, all the scholars, all the sages, the kings, you know, I'm sorry, not the kings, but the priests, you know, they're all taken away. And isn't that interesting? Because the people, when they try to destroy another people, they do the same thing. Is they go in and they, they kill all the doctors and the lawyers. Some people might be happy about that. They, they kill the doctors, the lawyers, the educated class, the professors, all the scholars, the scientists, they kill them or they bring them into captivity or whatever. And that's how you destroy a, a, a country, you know. Uh, my sister was telling me, my sister spent some time in Mongolia, and she said that at one point the Russians, the, under the Soviets, the Soviets came in to Mongolia, and Mongolia had had like an upper tier and an, an upper, upper tier of people who were poets, and it was like they weren't like this barbaric people living in igloos or something. I mean, they were like a cultivated, civilized people. And the Soviets decimated all the upper classes. And so then all the people that were left were just the people who were living in, in you know, tents and stuff. And, and so we think of Mongolia, we think of kind of like barbarians or something. But it actually wasn't always like that. They actually had, you know, kind of a, a real civilization there. Anyways, that's what she tells me. I don't know anything about Mongolia myself. 
But that's uh, so. So Nebuchadnezzar does that, and Ezekiel is kind of in somewhere in that process, and um, they are uh, being pulled away from their from the Holy Land, okay, from the land of Israel, and so then their death is their exile. You see, so so how about let's say this: the exile is being portrayed to us in the image of all these dead bones everywhere. Okay? And that are in their graves. So like they're they're scattered in this country, they're scattered in that country, and those are their graves because their life is connected to the land. And so God is saying, I'm going to bring you back to the land and in and the 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 ingathering, the return, the restoration of the exiles is envisioned as resurrection from the dead. Okay? Um and I think that's pretty clear from, from the, like Jesus even look in verse 11 here. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off, cut off from the land. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you home into the land of Israel. And so they feel the, the land of Israel, the people, I'm sorry, the people of Israel feel um, like dead. Because they're out, they're in exile. And that's, that's how they feel. Now, so some uh, scholars say, well, here's a question. Okay, here's a historical question. When did the Jewish people start to believe in this idea of a resurrection? Like what we believe in our creed, okay? And we believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? When did the Jewish people start to believe in that? Like what's the, when's the earliest occurrence that we can find of that belief? And, uh, uh, some date it really, really late, according to me, in my opinion, and they'll date it to the book of the Maccabees in like the third century. And I, I think it's a lot. I think the Jewish people as a whole believed in the resurrection way, way before that. And if you look at this, so so what scholars will say is this: they'll say this whole idea of the resurrection of the dead here is really just a metaphor for the the uh, return of the exiles, and so it's really not. Uh, evidence of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. But what I say, and this is, I got a quote from uh, St. Jerome, ancient Catholic biblical scholar, says, uh, some scholars date the Jewish belief in the resurrection very late and read this text as dealing exclusively with exile and restoration. Uh, Jerome says, the similitude of a resurrection would never have been employed to exhibit the restoration of the Israelite people if it had not been believed that it would really take place because no one confirms uncertain things by means of things which have no existence. So I, I think it presupposes the belief in the resurrection of the dead. That's what I, how I would say it. It's like God was, was wanted Ezekiel to understand, because he had to show him it all come together. You know, he really wanted to iron that home, lock that home to Ezekiel. Yeah. So that he knew. Knock what home? That he actually can take people that are dead, yeah, and put them back. Yeah, and put I think it's implicit in there. I think the main message is the restoration of the exiles, but at the same time, it also is dealing with the resurrection. Like, like God can do that; He has the power to do that. You know, and it's interesting too that this is very much similar to the creation account of Adam in Genesis chapter two, where God forms him from the dust and then He breathes into him. Uh, because the ancient fathers, when they were dealing with the pagans who were skeptical, or really they thought the idea of a resurrection was ridiculous, 
they would say, they would argue, well, if God can create someone from the earth, then he can resurrect someone. So that would, you know, the proof of the resurrection always depended on the, God's power to create. You know, if God can create from nothing, he can, he can bring back to life something that had already been alive. Didn't Abraham and see, and so then another thing, I, that what I would say too, uh, I would say the ancient prophets believed in it as well. You know, I really believe that. Uh, I mean, I believe that all prophets had had some understanding of this. Um, like, why would you look? Think of uh, the passage of Enoch in Genesis. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, uh, like five, I think it is, yeah. something like that. I mean, it's really early. It's one of the earliest chapters in the Bible. And it's, it gives a genealogy of all these people who live extraordinary long lifetimes, and then and then suddenly it says he, you know, he lived a certain amount of time period, and he was not, for God had taken him. And then other parts of the of the Bible interpret that passage as God basically like assuming Enoch into some heavenly realm, and that's a I think that's a, the best interpretation. I mean, I think the Bible is is got a reasonable interpretation of the Bible, as well as a. Then he comes back in the Acts of the Apostles for just a little bit for another sentence. In the Acts, I don't recall anything in the Acts. What, what are you thinking of? So what, I mean, um, in the New Testament, one of them quotes Enoch. Oh, I see what you're saying. There's a quote from a book attributed to Enoch in Jude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. New Testament. Yeah, yeah, New other, Testament. One, only one other thing about it. Yeah, that's kind of a separate question or separate issue. Yeah. But just going back to the Genesis text, I mean, what you've got him disappear he disappeared and it's reasonable to assume that Genesis really is saying he was assumed into heaven it, it just seems that Genesis is presupposing this kind of like physical corporeal eternal life I mean you have a man who's he didn't die in his his body in, in his fully integral personality body and soul he's not dead he didn't die so it seems to me like the idea of eternal life, vis-a-vis the, the whole person, including their body, is something the Bible just does take from granted from the earliest passages, and that the prophets would know about this. Uh, now, on, in contrast to that, though, you have passages where it says stuff like in the body, when body dies and the spirit goes to Sheol and no one comes back from Sheol and that kind of stuff. So sometimes death is portrayed as a very kind of final, it's, it's, it's portrayed as a very final thing. In the, in the Old Testament. And so that's true. You got those passages. But I just think that that's sort of like what it's doing is it's showing the power of death. That death in it itself is eternal. You know, That apart from God's power, the body and the soul just don't magically come back together like randomly by nature or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but, but that's just talking about naturally speaking, when the body dies, the soul separated from it and it's hopeless. But that doesn't mean that there isn't this other understanding that God has the power and the will to raise someone from the dead and to rejoin the body and the soul. I, I find it very early on. Now, maybe Israelites as a whole, like as part of their creed, part of their national creed, maybe it wasn't really fully understood or embraced on a large scale until the 5th, 6th century B.C., something like that, you know, but well, you said possibly, Abraham. right? Because you've got differences. I remember the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You know, so some, so some of the, you know, the ancient, ancient Jews before Christ did kind of debate this, and then, and the Sadducees get into a debate with Jesus about this, and Jesus has to give them the smackdown and argue with them, and he argues with them. It's interesting too. He argues with them from Exodus, which is the Pentateuch, which is what the, only the um, the Sadducees believed, and only the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the prophets. 
Okay, because you could go to Daniel, you could go to Isaiah, and you could show the resurrection of the dead from the prophets. But the Sadducees rejected those, and so they rejected all of the a more clear exposit the passages in the Bible that have a more clear teaching of that resurrection. They just recognized the Pentateuch, and so they say, "Hey, look at the Pentateuch. The resurrection is not in the Pentateuch." See, the thing is, I think it is. It's just kind of there implicit, you know. And God says to Abraham, "I give this land to you and to your seed forever." Well, what does that mean, you know? Uh, and then Christ's exposition of the burning bush, what God says in the burning bush, is very kind of profound. I mean, I don't even know how to deal with it. It's such a profound reading. He goes, he says, have you not read in the bush where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all are alive to him. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> he's just, he's like, Jesus' exposition of scripture was so... Like, I, I labor my whole life <laughs> to try to get an understanding of one little thing, but you see, because of the divine knowledge, he has divine knowledge, he just cuts so deep into into the scriptures to interpret them. As Abraham, <clears throat> when he was going to kill his son, did, didn't you say that yeah, exactly. you thought that he yeah. felt that his That's son, right. he was going to kill his son, but his son but his was going to rise from the dead? I, I mean, I really think that, I, I, from the Genesis text itself. Now, again, some scripture scholars, because of their method, they take a kind of a more... A tight, strict method than I do. I'm, I allow one scripture to inform another scripture and all this kind of stuff. So it has to do with like your method of reading the Bible. Yeah, I was, I was, like he was going to give his son Jesus. Yeah. So he wanted somebody that was just as good, just as dedicated to this as himself. God. Right. Right. I yes. seen a, I seen a guy teaching. He they were talking about blowing into Adam out of dust. Yeah. And you you had mentioned that. And he says, and I, I, I deeply believe that. I'm not trying to convince somebody. Yeah. But this guy says, well, how hard is it if you can take a caterpillar and it turns, gets in a cocoon, comes out a butterfly? You don't find that so fantastic. Yeah. You know, that's this big yeah, deal. Yeah. But it's a metamorphosis. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a change. So it's a, it's an it's, it's an argument nothing. from analogy. You know, there's an argument from analogy that 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 even in nature we see these kind of mysterious transformations, and so and so the author of nature he he could you know it's it's according to his method of acting that we see already. So yeah, that's a reasonable thing to talk about the butterfly. Okay, let's read on here. Uh, let's go to let's go 15 to 23. Um, yeah, 15 to 23. Uh, Gary, you wanna read? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the children of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him and join them together into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not show us what you mean by these, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them a one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks are of which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, 
and will gather them from all sides and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of the transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Great. Okay, so what we see here is something really special, and something's always captured my my uh, curiosity for many years now. And I and just today I was reading commentaries on this passage, and I think I've got more clarity about it now. And I'll see if I can get you to buy my interpretation of this. But but on the surface, certainly it appears that we have the two nations, the nation of Israel, which is the northern nation. Sometimes it's also called uh, Ephraim. Sometimes it's also referred to as Joseph. Okay, This is the northern nation, and then you have the southern nation, which is Judah. And uh, part of the return of the exiles into the land is going to be the reunification of the northern and the southern kingdom, which had been split up because of who? We were, studying, we were reading about this. What happened? How did they get split up? You guys remember? And connected with David's sin, certainly, uh, and but and also not only David's sin, but who else is uh, Solomon. Solomon? Yeah, yep. In uh, particularly his idolatry, which would go back to his wives. Uh, um, so, uh, so the split happened very early on. Now, under David, it was unified, and really, I mean, under Solomon, it was unified too, as well. But it's sort of like David is kind of the ideal uh, golden era. And it, the, the nation was unified under him. He, he unified it. I mean, that's kind of why it's... Uh, um, David is associated with the unity of Israel. Okay, and so then therefore we go on in verse 24. Tony, you want to read? My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Okay. So um, so then David shows, shows up again. So you got David... You have the reunification of the nation, and you have God's sanctuary, meaning his temple, in the land. All right. Um, so I, I think, on, I believe that we need to read this symbolically. All right. That this was not intended. I believe that it's read, uh, how will I phrase it like this? I believe that the New Testament authors read passages like this, which is Ezekiel 37 is not unique. Uh, because there's many passages in the prophets that paint the same kind of picture. 
the northern and the southern kingdom coming back together, the reunification of Israel, the ingathering them of, the, of them from exile back into the land, and then sometimes there's hinted a temple as well. But Ezekiel says it in a very, like in the most kind of explicit and concrete and vivid manner of all of them in this particular chapter here. I think we should interpret all of, I, I believe that the New Testament authors interpret all of those passages in the prophets, including Ezekiel 37, in a symbolic fashion, not in a, not in a literal fashion. And then furthermore, I would want to argue that that reading is not, an, is not an imposition that the New Testament performs on the Old Testament, but that it actually really is the proper interpretation of the Old Testament text itself. And uh, I'll try to argue that and see uh, how that can be the case. One consideration in general is this, that I think about is this. This whole idea that they're going to be gathered back into this land in this kind of tight geographical area, Palestine's a small little region, okay? Small, of course, relative to the whole world, but it's small even relative just to the Middle East. It's a tiny little strip of land. The Middle East is a very big place, and Palestine is a very small strip of the land. And... When I look at the prophets, there's so many pro- passages in the prophets that show a, a kind of a, um, uh, a regeneration of the entire world. That, it, that Israel is not, that that little strip of land is somehow, it starts to become not as important. And specifically in Isaiah, where it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. So Isaiah really, he, he envisions a cosmic regeneration. And uh, which seems to me to kind of, put the idea of Israel being gathered back into the land as kind of like puts it in the it puts it in a, in the in the side on the side uh, uh, side light I mean it's not um, it seems like it's really just talking about this in a metaphorical way that it really isn't the intention of God to bring Israel back into the land and have the land be some special thing and certainly in the New Testament it's that way and even more so, the New Testament does speak and really teaches, I think Christ teaches it in the Gospels and St. Paul teaches it in, in Romans. He teaches that the, the Jewish people, the Israel according to the flesh, as St. Paul will say, the people who are blood descendants of um, you know, Judah, who are real, the really Judah, uh, Jewish people, that they will come to believe in their Messiah, who we understand is Jesus, they will come to believe in him before the second coming. Uh, but their sal- the salvation of Israel, from the New Testament perspective, the salvation of Israel according to the flesh, is never associated with any kind of ingathering into the land. Uh, so I really think that those are sort of like uh, first, first considerations that lead me to believe this is not literal. And here's something else. I just read this today, and when we were, you know how much time we spent on Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how the promise in Abraham to the land, I was showed you, I can't even remember, we went through so much material myself, so if you don't remember, don't, don't feel bad, because I can't remember it. I went through so much material with Abraham, and I was trying to argue and show how that promise to him in chapter 12 about the land really had to do with the world as a whole, okay? Um, so let's do this. Let's go... Let's go to Genesis 17, but before we do that, let's go to Romans chapter 4, okay? Reggie, I was trying to fake you out. I was trying to get you to go to Genesis 17. It's a fake out. Romans. Romans 4. So I just read a, uh, actually I read a Protestant uh, commentator this today that made me really rethink a passage in Genesis um, 
It was pretty impressive. I was really, I thought it was quite, quite uh, insightful. Okay, so now St. Paul in Romans, he, he really reads these passages in the Old Testament in a very spiritual manner, okay? And we'll see that. So he talks about the Gentiles as being sons of Abraham, all right? So if we look in 4.13, um, it says, The promise to Abraham and his descent, uh, it really should be seed, okay? So my Revised Standard Version says descendants, but I'm just going to say seed because that's really what it is literally in the Greek. The promise to Abraham and his seed that they should inherit the world. You see? So Paul is taking the whole idea of inheriting the land. God promised to Abraham and to his seed that they will inherit the land of Canaan. But Paul reads it as that they will inherit the world. So Paul has reads Canaan in a in that prophecy in a symbolic fashion. Like Canaan is a type of a world regenerated and given over to the people of God. So the promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his seed, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I have made you the father of many nations. Now that's from Genesis 17, and we're going to go go to there. So Paul is... So God says to Abraham in Genesis 17... I have made you the father of many nations. Now, Paul is reading that as, okay, that means that the seed of Abraham, Abraham as father of his descendants, father of this seed, this innumerable seed, includes the Gentiles and not just the Jews. Well, and it includes the Muslims too, then? Uh, it includes anybody who has the faith of Abraham, meaning that saving faith in Christ, ultimately, in the seed, okay? So I want to include Abraham. Abraham, uh, in a certain sense, the, the the Arabs can be seen as a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, through Hagar, through Ishmael, but but not according to the promise. So, so the seed that um, Paul is talking about here is those who have true faith, and the Muslims would have a kind of a deviant faith. Okay, so we're talking Christians. All right, so the Christians are actually both Jewish and Gentile Christians are those who um, Paul is reading as the seed. And uh, I would, I, I guess I, I, for years I kind of saw Paul as taking a, kind of taking like an artistic license or something with the Old Testament text, and that possibly this whole idea of Abraham being, you know, from this particular passage, um, that he, uh, that the, it's not really in the passage itself. But now I'm, I think it probably is in the passage itself. So I'm really starting to see that these spiritual interpretations that the New Testament authors are performing on the Old Testament are really there, that the Old Testament really is teaching. I'm, I'm more and more persuaded of that the older I get. Okay, And I'll see if I can show you guys why I think that Paul is really reading the Bible correctly. Um, so... Uh, the other thing that's very interesting is this, is that Paul really defines Jews accurately. Because in a certain sense, Jews are not just the blood descendants of Abraham. 
There is also, uh, you know, they will say, I mean, a Jewish person will say, if they're an observant Jew, they're very religious, the Orthodox Jew, they'll say if a Gentile becomes circumcised and observes the law, they are, uh, they are a true son of Abraham. So, they, the, so the Jewish person will see a proselyte as a true son of Abraham. And, but see, observance of the law is key. And that's key for the Jewish identity is observance of the law. So that's why, and Paul really uh, associates observing the law with the Jewish identity. So he says, that's why he says um, in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, that mean, meaning the Old Testament saints, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now let me read on and just show you some a little bit more here. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, we're just talking about resurrection, right? And calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As had been uh, told, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, so forth and so on. So let's go to Genesis 17, which is what Paul is interpreting here. And I'll try to persuade you guys, maybe successfully, maybe not, that I think Paul is giving a, he's giving an accurate reading of the text. What does he mean, hope against hope? I've read that so many times. It doesn't make sense to you, yeah. Hope against hope. It's like, uh, I know what you're saying. It is a little bit of a kind of a strange phrase. To hope against hope. It's, um, it's almost hope he wasn't defied. It's not more of any nation. No, no. <laughs> I guess you know you could say the per, you could say this. Um, against all hope, he believed something. Okay, so sometimes hope is used in a skeptical sense, like uh, um, you know, think about that phrase itself. Against all hope, he believed that he would pass that exam. <laughs> you know, against all hope, he, he believed that he would pass that exam. So, what he, what, in that phrase, what he's the word hope is using in like a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, against all hope, meaning yeah. this kind of hope is not very good. Right. All right, it's like a negative hope, right? So, against all hope, he believed he'd pass that exam. All right, even though he never prepared for it. And so, I think it's that hope in like a negative sense that Paul is using when he says he hoped against hope. I don't know, that's the only way that I can explain it, but you're right, it is actually kind of a difficult... Get, get elated. What? Puffed up. You know what I'm that, you know, that, that, that Abraham... That's what I, that's what I was reading. That yeah. His head wouldn't be puffed up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, yeah. yeah. Abraham, he saw, like, if this was going to happen, it wasn't going to happen because of him. I mean, he's 90-something years old, and his wife was 90-something yeah. years old. So it was clearly divine power, you know. Okay. When I do, I do the, you know, uh, when I'm with a with a, a bride and a groom, and they're like, you know, past childbearing age in their 60s or 70s or whatever, we have the, we go through the premarital invest, investigation, and we ask, will you be open to life? And they'll be like, well, if a miracle happens, certainly I'll be open to life. But I, sorry, Father, I just don't think it's going to happen. But okay. All right. So. Uh, so we're in Genesis 17, okay? okay? When Abraham was 99 years old, all right, 
the Lord appeared to Abram. Uh, oh, and his name is Abram at this point, right? The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, it's important to know that at this time, Abram has already uh, taken under into his you know, uh, marital embrace Hagar, his slave woman. And he's had... He's conceived and, and Hagar has given birth to Ishmael. Okay? So Ishmael's already born and grown up. He's probably 12 or 13 years old or something like that. All right? So God is basically ignoring Ishmael in a certain sense. He's saying the promise is going to be fulfilled yet. It's yet to be fulfilled. The birth of Ishmael is not the fulfillment of my promise. That's what God is saying here. So he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So the multiplication, I think the implication is it's not through Ishmael, right? Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So again, some of these things that key me off here, the land of Canaan is going to be for an everlasting possession. But if you read the rest of the, the, the Old Testament, prophets in particular, it, it, you know, you have this, this new heavens and this new earth. Like the world itself seems to be the ultimate thing that's inherited by the chosen people of God. And so uh, right off the bat, it seems to me that Canaan here should not be read in a too literalistic fashion. So what I, how I used to read this was this. Okay. Abraham, if you look here, you've got Abraham had relations with three different women. Okay, so he was, he had Sarah, and then he had Hagar, and he had Keturah. Now, Keturah gave birth to like the Moabites and, and these kinds of peoples. All right? And then you had Hagar. Hagar and Abraham, they gave birth to Ishmael. And then it was between Abraham and Sarah that had, they had Isaac, and Isaac had Esau and Jacob. So, Without thinking about it too deeply, when it says, I'm going to make you a father of nations, I said to myself, well, it, you know, you got Abraham is producing lots of different lineages, bloodlines are going off, streaming out of Abraham. And, and Barb brought up, you know, the fact that the Muslims, the Arab Muslims, believe that they're descendants of Ishmael. And in the Quran, Abraham offers on Mount Moriah, not Isaac, but Ishmael. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so because it, it and it probably I mean I'd like to. For, I had two questions as I studied things. So I had heard that the Muslims, or not that the Muslims, I had heard Christians say that Muslims can be traced back to Ishmael, but that to me sounded like a like a a biased polemic against the Muslims because Paul in Galatians is explicitly saying that Ishmael is the son of Hagar and this is the son of the flesh. And Isaac is the son of Sarah, and this is the son of the promise. 
So it sounded like this really kind of low blow, you know, strike at Muslims on the part of Christians. And so I just said, oh, I, I don't know. I said maybe there's some truth here, but I don't know. I, I was skeptical of it. But now that I'm studying all this Islamic literature, I can see that the Muslims themselves very are very adamant that their descendants, that the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. And they're proud of this, and this is what they want to be known as. And then furthermore, it, it, it probably is the case too, historically, you could probably argue that, that it's actually true that Arabs do are descendants of Ishmael. So it's interesting. I mean... Can you think about it? Is it almost eerie how salvation history works out and, and the role of Muslims versus Jews and Christians in the world and how everything's playing out? It's like, how does that, you know? What? Well, many of them are, but that's, that's not exactly true, though, because the Muslim religion spread into Persia. So you got Iran, which they're really the of Persian extraction. And then, of course, it spread big time into Africa. So you've got Africans and Persians and then India as well, too. So then you got Indian Muslims. So there's about four big people groups that are, are Muslim, not just the Arabs, but the Arabs were the original. And Muhammad himself is an Arab. So um, that's kind of how I read this passage, guys, right? But I think it's not correct. I think that Paul's... I, 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 let's read on. I'll show you, show you what I'm talking about here. Um, 9 through 14, let's skip over, okay? Let's go to 15. We're still in Genesis 17, okay? And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. A mother, so Sarah is going to be a mother of nations, right? Kings of people shall come from her. Okay, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old, so, shall, so forth and so on. And Abraham said to God in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So, so the same promise that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, the same language, the same promise, is talking about Sarah as well. So that completely excludes both Ishmael and, and I'm sorry, Hagar and Keturah. And so Abraham is going to be a father of nations through Isaac. But then we know that Esau is explicitly excluded later on. And so then Abraham is going to be a father of nations, plural, through this lineage. But we know Jacob, even though he had 12 sons, that's one nation. This is the one nation of Israel. So I think Paul's reading is right. He's correct. I mean, Paul is not... He's not doing a like a metaphorical reading of Genesis 17. Like that Genesis 17 is really teaching that the Gentiles, that all these promises that they're going to inherit the land and all that stuff are for not just blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's nations in plural. It's the Gentiles. I, I mean, I, I don't know how else to read it, you know? I, I was, like, staring at this thing for, like, two hours today. I'm like, I think that's what it says, you know? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And it took me 20 years to come to that. <laughs> really, I, it's unbelievable. I can't believe it. I keep reading the Bible. There's always just amazing. You keep reading new, new stuff. You learn new stuff. So, so I guess my point here is that when we go back to Ezekiel 37 and we go back to the prophets in general and we see this kind of ingathering back to the land and this inheritance of the land, 
it's the land, Canaan, that promise has got to be associated with nations, with Gentiles. That means the spiritual descendants of Abraham. But the spiritual descendants of Abraham are from the Gentiles. They're all over the whole world. And so the promised land is really just all of the cosmos redeemed. And that's why Paul says that it was promised to Abraham that he would be heir of the world. So I, I really think that you know when it you've got this vision of northern Israel, southern Israel coming back into the land, they're coming back together, but it's like the prophet is taking things that people that the Israelites, his audience, knew of in their past, and he's using them as a type to talk about a future fulfillment that's kind of beyond maybe his horizon of most people's imaginations, you know? And uh, so that's why he has David, because if you think, because as David is going to be my king, I don't, I don't think we should interpret that literally. I don't think Ezekiel meant that literally. David is the king. Go back to David. David was the one king when both the nation was totally unified and the land was really at its greatest extent and, nation, and David had been, was, was victorious over all their enemies and he was really kind of king of the world in a certain sense. And so it's like Ezekiel in chapter 37 is envisioning this Davidic era, this kind of ideal Davidic era where the nation of Israel is unified. They're not split. There's no chaos between them. You know, rewind before Solomon's idolatry, before David's sin. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the best, I think that's, the best reading of it. And then when I read the traditional commentaries, which I can't find a lot, I just got one. There's a 19th century commentary I got by the name of Leo Haydock, and he reads it as well, uh, non-literally. Non, uh, so, I mean, within the Catholic tradition. So I think that I, I want to I find more Catholic interpreters on Ezekiel 37, but that's how I would read it. Also, too, look at this. Go to Ezekiel 35.15. And 36 and 37 are all kind of talking about the restoration of Israel and uh, they're, they're coming back to the Holy Land and, and all of that. And so in the midst of that, 35 is all against Mount Seir. And so it's this huge prophecy against Mount Seir, which is uh, the land of Edom. And the Edomites were thought to be the descendants of Esau. Okay, so what you've got is this chapter 35 that bashes Edom and Esau. And in particular, if you look in uh, verse 15, it says, As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So here's God's kind of wrath and vengeance coming, being poured out on, on Edom or Esau. And... That would tie into how St. Paul says, um, but it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau I've hated. And so there's a kind of a, Esau represents the, the reprobate. They represent the enemies of God. They represent the enemies of the people of God. So we shouldn't read this either in a literal fashion. It's, it should be read in a spiritual fashion. It's typological. Um, it's a type. 
So Esau and the Edomites in Mount Seir become a type of all of those forces in the world that are contrary to God and contrary to God's designs and his people and his plans and his will for, for creation. And Jacob then becomes typical of all the elect, not just those who are blood descendants of Abraham, not just those who observe the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham, the faith that he had before he was circumcised, meaning all the Gentile Christian believers. So this is all just Paul's reading of the Old Testament, and I, I really, I'm becoming more and more convinced that Paul's interpretation of these texts and Genesis and the prophets are, you know, he's not stretching it. I'm like, this is really in the in the text. Um, I thought his was divine intervention. Paul, Paul it is. No, we, it, Paul, Paul's right in whatever he says, okay? If he's writing inspired scripture, he's, he's, he's correct. It's sort of, so like what I'm doing is I'm just for the minute, I'm bracketing that. I mean, I believe that, you know what I mean? But I'm just trying to, I want, I want to be convinced through my reason that Paul is having an accurate reading of the Old Testament, you know? If he was doing some kind of, uh, see, you got two different reading, uh, methods of reading. One is called exegesis, and that means that you're interpreting the scripture out, you're, you're getting the meaning out of the scripture. The meaning that's really in the scripture, you're drawing it out. And then there's asegesis, and that is, you're putting meaning into the scripture, okay? And you're reading it. You yourself are performing some kind of a clever metaphorical reading of it, you know? And that's asegesis. You're putting meaning into the text. Now, I think it's possible. It's also referred to as an appropriated reading of the text, okay? So that the author himself didn't intend or mean this, but uh, you, you are reading it in a certain fashion, okay? I think sometimes the New Testament authors do that to the Old Testament, though. I think sometimes, not not a lot, right? But I think sometimes the New Testament authors do that with the Old Testament. That's what I would say. That's not in self-interpretation, though. They would still be inspired in it. That's the thing. So because the New Testament authors themselves are inspired, you'd have inspired, appropriated readings. You know? Like... um, you know, you use you could use a text in the Old Testament to do like an anal, uh, to to do like an allegory, okay? And you're using a narrative in the Old Testament as uh, and you're reading it allegorically or something like that. I mean, I think you can do that if you want. You're, you have your own meaning. So the New Testament. So what I would be saying is that the New Testament authors they're making their own point and they're appropriating the Old Testament text into their own point. And what they're teaching is authoritative. I mean, they don't have to quote Old Testament at all. I mean, if they're inspired, right? Whatever they say is right, from God. Right, but we as, as people that are reading it today, mm-hmm. we have to be very careful. No, no, we should not do that. Okay. No, no, we shouldn't do that. But the but the New Testament authors can do that because they're inspired authors. Okay. Yeah. I, th- this gets into, we're getting into real fine details here, but, you know, it is interesting. You take take the authors of the New Testament and see how they interpreted the Old Testament and see, you know, so... Years ago, I would have more of a tendency to think that St. Paul was doing like kind of creative, appropriative readings of the Old Testament, but now I'm starting to, to, to he was doing exegesis. But now, and more and more, I'm really starting to think, no, he's doing exegesis. Oh, this is really what Genesis is talking about. It's not meant to be read literally. I mean, I don't, I don't think he, they wouldn't tell him and then say, okay, Paul, now you go back in here and this is what this is going to refer to. <laughs> I don't think they were telling uh, St. Paul that. Who's they? God. 
the inspiration. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. yeah. Now we're getting into questions about like how to con- how do you conceive inspiration stuff. Um, I mean, I think the authors were operating according to their natural faculties that they weren't hearing necessarily God speak to them. That they were operating according to their natural faculties, but inspiration works through that. Grace works through their natural faculties and their natural personality and their skills and their own knowledge and things like that. You know, what I mean. So that that's a, we're getting this is a can of worms of questions of how do you how do you conceive of inspiration, you know how do you because see like Old Testament prophets I I think that psychologically what would experience like Jeremiah would really basically kind of like hear a voice in his mind, you know like specific words, that, and the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, I will take you from so like Jeremiah would like hear that in his mind. And then he would start to give voice to it, and he became this kind of an inspired vessel. He wasn't a puppet that his whole, you know, his free will was taken away, and God was playing yeah, with him. Yeah, no, his free will was there. He could stop prophesying if he wanted to, but at the same time, it was like a voice that he heard in his head, and that he was giving voice to. Okay, I think that Jeremiah and the prophets would like that. Moses, of course, hears and the children of Israel hear God's voice from heaven, given the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's that's really God speaking. But I think the New Testament authors, they didn't write. And a lot of Old Testament authors, they just wrote according to their natural skill. They didn't really have a voice in their head or something, you know? Because God never changes. It's always the same. It's like it's, as it was in the beginning, it was now, no shall. Okay, so... Amen. So God's always... He never changes. Okay. He's always the same. Yeah. And so it's everybody else's... Is is in different changing interpretation throughout time. So, so that's I mean, it's like the same thing that he's trying to cause. It's just what that he's trying to get across all the time. Sure, it's the same spirit inspiring all the all the authors. But what I'm saying is psychologically, I think the experience of the authors would be different. Yes. So, like Jeremiah really would kind of hear like a voice in his head, whereas. Uh, maybe St. Paul, it wasn't like that. St. Paul was, he was, he, he had a lifetime of interpreting the Old Testament. He was inspired by the gospel revelation, Christ appearing to him directly. And so with all of that together, he was just, had the, the, uh, the, the skills and the knowledge to, to write these epistles and to guide and to be a pastor. Yes. Now when he did that, he did that under divine inspiration, but psychologically, he didn't experience like a voice in his head. You know, he just wrote a letter. And he was just interpreting the Old Testament. You know, that's psychologically what he was experiencing. Yeah. You know, that's how I'm. That's what I'm saying. Anyways, we're getting a little bit off there track wasn't, here. There wasn't gnashing of teeth when they were writing in their inspiration, right? It wasn't what? Gnashing. There'll be gnashing of teeth. You ever see in those? Yeah, in the, the Gospels. Prophets. Yeah. You know, they must have felt like I feel like Paul. Right? Oh yeah, no, Paul, they weren't being possessed or something like that. They weren't. Yeah, they yeah, you know, and it says it says uh, look in the go to the beginning of Luke. Luke says I consulted people. I look. I did my homework. Other people have done this. I drew from these sources. You know, Second Maccabees is written like that. Second Maccabees starts off by saying Jason of Cyrene's written this work, and I've condensed it. You know, and it took a lot of time and labor and sweat and energy for me to do this, and I'm exhausted. You know, what I mean? so it, it's a. But it doesn't mean that, see, grace works through nature. Right. We're okay. living in the time of grace. So we're lucky. We're really kind of, I would think. 
Sure, sure. Could we have the Bible completed for us? Yeah, we have the full revelation. No, we are lucky, absolutely. Christ says to He says that many prophets and wise men have longed to see what you've seen and longed to hear what your ears hear and they and they heard it not. Okay, so let's see here. Go going back to uh Ezekiel thirty seven. Um Going back on the back sheet of my paper here. Here's another, here's a consideration. Okay. If we go to Ezekiel and the earlier passage in Ezekiel, um, actually we've only got 20 minutes so we should probably move on here. Uh, okay, this is a side note here because it ties in with our liturgy, right? In 37, uh, 26 to 28, which we read already, talk about, um, the everlasting covenant of peace. So if, we go and we look in um, verse, uh, let's see here, it's 25. They shall dwell in the land where your fathers dwelt that I gave to my servant Jacob uh, forever. 26. Yeah, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Now, we've seen, remember last time we got together, we talked about covenants. We talked about the, the new covenant, specifically that Jeremiah talks about, and I think it's Jeremiah 31. In Isaiah as well, the servant is a covenant to the peoples so that the, this messianic figure is himself, his person is a covenant. And then that's all very beautifully fulfilled in Christ and in the Eucharist. So in our, in our words of consecration that we use during the Mass, the priest says, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many. So basically, the words of consecration, they combine Jeremiah's new covenant and Ezekiel's eternal covenant. And I, and I do think that the Eucharist and Christ's covenant, the new covenant, is, is the fulfillment of, of just what Jeremiah is speaking about in, in 31 and, and Ezekiel uh, is speaking about in Ezekiel 37. Now, we have this other very interesting passage in Ezekiel. We'll go on to the rest of Ezekiel. We can't, we're not going to read anything from it, but I'll just give you an overview. In chapters 38 and 39, you've got this guy, Gog, and he comes from Magog, right? That's pretty cool, right? Gog and Magog, you know? So you got this guy, Gog, and he's from the land of Magog, and he leads this, this army against Israel, and there's this huge battle that takes place, and God really is the one that brings the victory, and he destroys Gog and, and the nation of Magog and all this kind of stuff. It's this final battle. It's like the great... It's the... Uh, Armageddon, basically. Okay, and uh, again, I, I really think you should interpret this in a non in 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 a non literal fashion. I think you see two streams all throughout the prophets. You have Gentiles, okay, non Israelite people, and they come to Jerusalem for two reasons. Either one, they come to worship the God of Israel, and they come as supplicants. They come to learn the law of the Lord. They come as pilgrims. Um, and so they're positive Gentiles who are being joined to the people of God and are becoming the people of God. Or you've got Gentiles streaming to Jerusalem because they hate the people of God and they want to destroy it. So that's how you've got these two pilgrimages, an evil pilgrimage and a, and a, and a religious positive pilgrimage. And Gog and Magog, I think, are just this whole chapter of 38 and 39, these two chapters, are the kind of uh, summation of this theme of these evil nations coming to destroy Israel. And I think, again, what that is, is 
all of these forces that are opposed to God's will and God's chosen people. Okay, so that Esau is a type of this, and that Gog and Magog are a type of this. And, um, you know, this goes back to Psalm 2. Remember when we were reading the Psalter? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? The Lord laughs them, you know, is, is on Mount Zion. He laughs them derision. I've set my, my king on Mount Zion. Okay? And basically, you know, no matter what these evil forces are, are plotting against God and his Messiah and his plan for his chosen people, they're not going to win. So there's a conflict. And I think the ultimate fulfillment of that is really it's, it's demonic powers. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And, uh, and also, unfortunately, the human powers that cooperate with the, with the demonic powers. You know, Human powers, unfortunately, there's governments that set up, I think, a Marxist regime. You know, Marxism is, is based purely on the philosophy of state atheism. Um, you know, so you have, you have human powers that cooperate with that. Whenever a, a, whenever a country is unjust, whenever we as Americans are unjust towards other countries or towards our own people, when we pass unjust laws, you know, of course, all the whole uh, abortion issue and everything else, you know, that's we're, we're, we're being Gog and Magog. Do you think it's worse now than it was in the times of Noah? In the times of Noah, you mean before the apocalyptic flood? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it's it did, bad. We're violent in a more subtle way. What I, what I don't like is we, uh, our violence is against, against, like, we don't go up and, you know, like civilized people in the Western world don't, like, meet someone face to face that they can talk to and have a conversation with and kill them. But, like, if you can't see the person or if the person doesn't seem to be in a, per, you know, they're in a coma or they're in the womb. Smoke and mirrors. Kill them, you know, because we don't, so we, we, we dehumanize that which is not, Immediately evident as a, to our senses. You know, if the person's personality is not open to our senses, we we dehumanize them. Well, there's people who are explicitly against Jesus himself, and that's that's bad, of course. Um, the the other thing, the other thing too, is in our methods of warfare. What I don't like at all is. Um, you know, there's this kind of, uh, there was a day when soldiers were like, okay, I need to know that our war is just for me to fight in this thing. I'm not going to fight in a war that's not just. So I need to know that it's just. Now, sometimes there was propaganda produced to try to persuade people that it was just when it really wasn't. But, but for the most part, there was an attempt, at least, to say this is just. And there was an attempt to get the clergy on your side. You know, so that the church leaders could be saying, "Yes, this is a just war. Uh, we can, you know, send our chaplains in and support our soldiers, and we, this is righteous." You know, because uh, you know, if you're going to kill someone, you're going to shoot someone. You want to know? <laughs> you better know that this is a just endeavor that you're engaged in. You know, because it's a pretty, it's a big deal. You're, you're playing God, exactly. So um, there was a time when it was like God and country, and there was a sense of honor. And, you know, a very, it was much more easy, say, like in this 18th century and the 19th century, to delineate between combatants and non-combatants. Like, okay, these people are not combatants, so we don't fight them. These people are wearing uniforms and they have guns, so we fight them. It's like it's more clear, right? Now, though, we have, because of the mechanized warfare, 
there's a depersonalization of it, right? The distance, you've got these huge weapons of mass destruction. You've got guns that are being used, like people kill each other on with like remote control drones, drones and all that kind of stuff, you know? So, and then it's like dropping bombs on places that are, we, I, I think we do a, a decent job, maybe someone can check me on this, but I think we do a decent job of avoiding civilians as much as possible. We're still dropping bombs on we went, we went places back, where civilians are. Like when Baghdad, that's the first time we set yeah. back and molested Yeah. You know, about the war in Iraq, uh, in, uh, I didn't know what to think at that time, uh, even though yes, it no. seemed like John Paul II was against it. I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't jump on, I didn't believe John Paul II right away. I just was kind of neutral towards it. I didn't know because I'm an American, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in hindsight, I think it was not, that was an unjust war. That's my yeah, opinion. It's, it's it wasn't no, a good. There was no weapons of mass destruction. Well, there was no weapons of mass destruction, but it, it didn't produce any good thing. It's destabilized the area. And then it gave room to ISIS yeah, that's and the we, liquidation that, of all the Christians that are going yeah, on there right now. So at least with Saddam Hussein, who was a dictator, at least he had kind of control, you know, and like Christians weren't being liquidated. <laughs> he, was, he was an oil tycoon. So was, was Bush's. Yeah. Anyway, so we're getting into politics here. Avoid this. Yeah. Priests should not get into politics, right? Yeah. But a lot of the world was we, we get blamed for that. We get blamed for that. Priests still get into politics, right? When, you, when, when the United Nations... Yeah. So we shouldn't be taking the blame like we do. What, do you th- what did you say, Reggie? What do you think? I said, but not here. Politics. Yeah, okay. So uh, one thing I want to do is... So I guess we're showing, talking about... Um, well, we're talking about nations that can align themselves with the powers that are against God. And so the point is that that's a real possibility. And I think that's what... Gog and Magog and some of these images of these nations that are coming and fighting against Israel. Really, I think that's what it's about. Um, and then Ezekiel 40 to 48 is very interesting uh, because it's the temple. It shows you this eschatological temple, all right? And uh, it goes over great details about its size, about the kinds of animals that will be sacrificed there, about the messianic prince that's going to be in it, who I think is a messianic figure, prince who's going to be in this temple, and he's going to be, you know, they come in through the east gate and and so forth and so on. Also, what's really interesting is, uh, I think it's in the beginning of chapter 44, the glory of God... So in in Ezekiel 44, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And he said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way, so forth and so on. So I think maybe that's not the exact passage I was thinking of, but there's another there's another passage where the glory of God, which has in Ezekiel it's portrayed as having left the temple. Very sad thing to think about that. The glory of God actually leaves the temple and it basically just flies away into heaven. And then it, there's another passage I can't find it, but it comes back into this this final temple that Ezekiel sees here, and it comes in through the east gate. And uh, and it's there to dwell. So God's presence is now in the sanctuary in the midst of the people of Israel forever. 
And again, I, I really think that Ezekiel did not intend this to be literal. Um, you have, and certainly from a New Testament perspective, it's, it's difficult to read it literally because you have sacrifices taking place, and we know that Christ's sacrifice has come and has fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, and you have this priesthood that's being envisioned here, but again, it's like, you know, we have, a, we have the, 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 the New Testament priesthood is really fulfilled in Christ and in the Eucharist. Um, so I really think that this temple is not meant, it's not intended to be a literal temple. But i got to let you know, there are many Jewish people who read this literally. And they think that God will rebuild a, a temple, that they should build a re- uh, rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. And there's very wealthy uh, Jewish men right now who have um, undertaken to start to build all of the holy vessels that are used in the in the sacrifice in the animal sacrifice and the altar and all that kind of stuff so there's there's guys that have storehouses of all of these sacred vessels and they have got rabbis and experts trying to decide okay it should look like this it should be this size it should be like that you know so they i mean they want to do it right now the temple mount has got the Aqsa mosque and the dome of the rock on there <laughs> okay so the muslims occupy the the temple mount and so but there are jewish movements and groups that they really want to build the temple. And every year in, in Israel right now, there's a group called the Temple Mount Faithful, the Jewish people. They have this huge uh, uh, truck that's got this four-ton stone on it. And they drive up every year. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a cornerstone of the temple. They drive up as close as they can get to the temple and they have a demonstration, a little party. And all the Israeli soldiers are there with their with their arms and like, hi, hi, uh, hi, uh, Sharon, oh, okay, hi, Shlomo, you know, and, and it's like, it's, so they, that's about as far as it goes, and they know it's a game, basically, but it's showing that... But you know, but you know, you, you think of the past, and you think of, you think of Egypt, and you think of the water, the water's sweating, you think of water coming from Iraq, and the manna from heaven, and I can, I, I can see where they kind of... Yeah, they wanted to take it seriously. And, and Ezekiel, in fact, I was listening to a rabbi just recently, and he was interpreting all these passages literally. He was interpreting them all literally. In fa- and yeah, so, I, I mean, I think it's a wrong reading. I think it's a wrong reading. And I think you can find within, the other thing I'd further argue is this, I think you can find within Judaism itself streams of interpretation that are like how we interpret it, that interpret it non-literally. So, see, Judaism's a, there's a pluralism to it. You know, there's a real plurality to it, and some streams are more literalistic than others. You know, some streams of interpretive tradition are more literalistic than others. Let's just go to finally, uh, we could we could look at a lot here, but let's go to John. Let's go to the Gospel of John, and I think that John interprets all of these passages, and specifically Ezekiel, in the way that I'm interpreting them. Um, Revelation, John. It, no, I'm sorry, just the Gospel, the fourth Gospel. Uh, you know, you might not totally buy it, but I, I don't know. I think it's there. It's subtle. So if you go to John chapter 10, if you look at 8 and 16, okay? 8 through 16? Uh, verses 8 and 16. So Jesus is talking about the shepherd. And he's talking about the sheep. And, and this, he's, he's really alluding to Ezekiel, okay? So Jesus again said to them, and this is verse 7, so John 10, 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And uh, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. So now Jesus is not only the gate, but he's also the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own uh, the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is not... uh, because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. So who are these other sheep that Jesus is speaking about? Sheep that didn't come along yet. The Gentiles. Yep. So you see how, so he's saying, I have other sheep and I'm going to bring them together and there's going to be one sh- one sheepfold and one shepherd. Okay, and they go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 35. And you see, I, I think it's a, Christ is interpreting those passages. And so this unification uh, is, is talking about the Gentiles, all right, of the northern Israel and the southern Israel. Okay, if we go to 1151 to 52. Uh, John. John chapter 11, verse 51 to 52. So Caiaphas, the high priest, says we're going to have to kill Jesus. And he inadvertently says something true, but not, he, he says something true under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you're talking about inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is interesting because he doesn't even know he's prophesying, but he is. Okay. So uh, he says in 49, uh, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, verse 50, You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So uh, there's a lot of things going on there. One thing that's interesting just to point out is that Caiaphas is prophesying and he's not even knowing about it. What Caiaphas means is this. We don't want the wrong... This, this rabble-rouser, Jesus, is going to get us in trouble because people are really thinking he's the Messiah. And what's going to happen is if they, everybody starts proclaiming him king, the Romans are going to come in here and destroy us. And we want to stop that from happening, which is interesting but because it happened anyways. Is that propaganda just to say that, to try to get people against them, or do you think that... Would oh, no, he really believed it. Yeah, he really believed it. There's no doubt about it. He was, a, he was all, it's all expediency. He was a pragmatist. He was almost Machiavellian. I mean, he, he was saying, look, we just, whether this guy is a good man or a bad man, I don't care. We have to kill him, get him out of the way, because he's really destabilizing things. And the Romans are going to come in and kill us. Okay, so... But, so he says, don't you think it's, it's, don't you know that it's expedient that one man should die and the whole nation should not perish? Yeah, I know. So that's what he means, but the Holy Spirit was speaking through him another meaning. The other meaning was that Jesus would die in atonement for the sins, not only of that nation, meaning the Jewish people, but to gather together all the children of God scattered abroad. Mm-hmm. So it's manipulated to his advantage, what his agenda was. Uh, no, this is the this is the author. So Caiaphas himself is saying this. Everybody's afraid about what's going on with Jesus, right? 
The, this is like behind closed doors. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are talking to each other. They're like, he just rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're like, what's going on? Everybody's going over to him. People are thinking he's the Messiah. This is really a problem. And Caiaphas says, look, guys, we just have to kill him. Okay? Don't you know that it's better that he would die rather than that the Romans come in here and kill everybody? You see? But he was actually, the Holy Spirit was speaking through him, and he didn't know it even. And what the Holy Spirit was speaking through him was that it's better that Jesus would die and that a whole nation would not perish, meaning that Jesus' atoning death on the cross would save, would bring salvation to the whole nation, the Jewish nation, and not just to the Jewish nation, but to all the children of God who were scattered abroad. So all of this idea of the children of God scattered abroad, that's the Gentiles, and they're going to be gathered in. And Jesus is the new temple, okay, and so he's going to be gathered. So that's why he says in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they said, wait, it took 40 years to build this thing? You're going to destroy it and raise it? He's talking about the temple of his body. You know. So remember, this church, the temple, and that's why I'm trying to also say the Holy Land, it should be understood as it's not a geographical location that the people of God come into, but it is, it's really it's the universe regenerated, renewed, and made a fit dwelling place for God for eternity. That's kind of how I'm reading. I think John reads Ezekiel and, and all these prophecies about, you know, the, all the people coming back to the land. He reads John reads those Old Testament pa- passages as having to do with the Gentiles. I don't think they coming even in. knew how big he was. Jesus was, you know, because he had people like miles away. Paul went to, you know, how many miles away were these people? They took Jesus and ships and went. Jesus himself, in the days of his earthly ministry, only preached just within the boundaries of, of Palestine. And he had a big following. And they knew that the Pharisees knew the size and the extent of his following. That's why they were worried, because it, it involved a lot of people. Okay, guys. Uh, that's it for tonight. Um, we.